Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Father James J. Kahn, S.J., Professor of Canon Law at Boston College, giving a talk entitled, The Dialogue of Faith and Reason. Father Kahn's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. What a delight it is to be at Franciscan University for the first time. I'm especially grateful to Father Sean Sheridan for arranging this invitation. He and I first met some years ago while I was, he was working on his doctoral dissertation at Catholic University of America, and I was visiting a Jesuit classmate who had been Father Sheridan's liturgy professor at the Washington Theological Union. Father Sean and I share an interest in canonical questions relating to Catholic uh, universities, and I have fo followed his scholarly and academic journey with uh, enthusiastic interest. My more immediate connection with uh, Steubenville can be found in two recently ordained Jesuit priests whom I taught at our School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. They both were undergraduates here and speak in glowing terms of their college experience here. They're both among the finest students I have known in my 44 years in teaching. Uh, they were eminently well prepared for their seminary level studies. They think clearly, write and speak eloquently, and argue persuasively. Of greater importance still, I hasten to say, is their lively Catholic faith uh, and zeal for souls. If they are typical of Steubenville graduates, uh, I will never stop singing its praises and commending it to young people and their families who are seeking the very best in Catholic higher education. My role as I understand it in this Fidelity and Freedom series uh, is to reflect with you on some of the canonical dimensions of St. John Paul II's landmark apostolic constitution, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, whose 25th anniversary we observe this year. Not altogether Coincidental is this same year's 50th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council's declaration, Gravissimum Educationis, on Catholic education. Thinking about the intersection of church and school has in some way or another occupied most of my life. Uh, in the 1950s, because of a visual handicap that I have always had, I was what the good sisters in Philadelphia used to call a public schoolboy. In those days I was, and hope I still am, as you in Steubenville proudly proclaim passionately Catholic. I was a faithful participant in twice weekly catechism classes and learned their lessons well. Our mostly Protestant public school teachers were not sympathetic uh, to the faith and not too subtly let us uh, in the Catholic minority know it. Ecumenism had not yet taken root in the city of brotherly love. I finally made it to a Catholic school at grade seven and spent my adolescent years, which uh, were coterminous with Vatican II, under the influence of the Jesuits at St. Joseph's Preparatory School in my hometown. That experience changed my life. I would not exchange that peerless education with any other. Wanting to be like my Jesuit teachers when I grew up, I entered the order at 18, and even as a novice heard the first reflections of some of my elders about how the spirit of the council would affect what we then still called our universities. I confess that in my youthful enthusiasm, I was seduced by visions of entering the mainstream of American higher education and loosing the shackles of ecclesiastical control. At that very time, the leaders of Catholic higher education were meeting at what we talked about last night briefly, Landa Lakes, Wisconsin, to assert the true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of whatever kind, lay or clerical, external to the academic community itself. One of the early effects of the spirit of the council on religious formation was the move away from isolated rural seminaries 
to university campuses so that we young religious could study with our lay classmates, in my case, at Fordham University in New York City. In the late 1960s, many of us protested and rebelled with those same classmates. What was it we used to say? US out of Vietnam, Razi out of Fordham. I did only a little of that, preferring instead to make friends with my Jesuit uh, brothers who were university administrators and offered to assist them in their more bureaucratic tasks. At a tender age, I conceived an ambition to follow in their distinguished footsteps. I was very nicely treated by these elder brothers of mine and enjoyed life in their academic and social fast lane. By the mid-70s, when I was ordained to the priesthood, the transformation of much of Catholic higher education had already taken place. Needless to say, my own experience was for the most part limited to the 28 Jesuit colleges and universities, especially those in the Northeast. The most significant juridical changes they had undergone was a separation of the institutions from their uh, from the religious order that founded uh, it and uh, until then governed and uh, directed them. The universities had long since obtained civil charters and corporate bylaws, but the religious superior of the local religious house had always been the president of the college, and his religious council constituted the board of trustees of the institution. Around the time of the Land O'Lakes meeting, the two entities gradually began to move away from each other, making it official in the eyes of the civil law by effecting a separate incorporation of the religious community and its assets. Lay trustees, often in large numbers, were added to the boards in such a way that, in short order, the religious did not occupy enough seats even to prevent action taken by a supermajority. The, officer, the offices of superior and president were occupied then by two different members of the community and the lines of authority between them and their subordinates quickly blurred. Other changes, far more significant from the point of view of Catholic identity, including extending faculty appointments to non-Catholics, some of whom, along with some of their Catholic colleagues, were less than passionate about the institution's Catholic identity. Such uh, indifference and even uh, antipathy were reflected in curriculum and a host of factors involving student life and activity. Little of this should be news to some of you listening to me, but I rehearse it uh, as some background to my own more immediate formation as a scholar and would-be leader in Catholic higher education. I listened to some naysayers at the time who questioned whether the institutional leaders had gone too far and may even have violated, unwittingly perhaps, the law of the church in fashioning their institution's new structures. I had considered their motivation to be basically good to make Catholic universities as outstanding as they could be and competitive with the highly rated secular institutions in our country. But perhaps I, along with some of my confreres, had failed to consider how the values of secular higher education were in some respects inconsistent with the Catholic aspirations that we took for granted. My 1980 assignment to pursue doctoral studies in canon law in Rome would show me the way I naively thought to balance the complementary values of institutional autonomy and Catholic identity. Sapientia Christiana, the apostolic constitution governing ecclesiastical faculties and universities, had just been promulgated, and the leaders of Catholic universities in the United States were assured that its detailed provisions did not pertain to their institutions. But John Paul II promised a companion document addressing his concern for the many higher level institutions that are not exclusively dedicated to the sacred sciences. At the same time, the church was in the last stages of, deal, of drafting a new code of canon law 
and the US university presidents were among the most active and vocal lobbyists against any prescriptive norms in that code that would limit their institution's autonomy. How foolish I was to think that I could help them to fulfill their hope, and more foolish still to imagine that their hope was in the church's best interests. As a teacher of canon law, I try to bear three objectives in mind. The first is to help my students to know as accurately as possible what a norm of law requires, allows, or prohibits, and to distinguish between those prescriptive norms of law um, that do such things as requiring, allowing, or prohibiting, and those that are either descriptive or precative, hortatory, encouraging. The second objective is to assist the students in discovering the ratio legis, that is, the reason for the law and the reason, the inherent reason, in the law. The theological or ecclesiological value that the law is meant to safeguard or promote. The third objective goes beyond the immediate parameters of the norm itself when I suggest to them the practical means of applying uh, the norm in concrete settings. So that connection between the reason for the law and the law itself uh, is uh, more or less uh, my contribution to this uh, reflection uh, that we're uh, doing here at this symposium. In the rather protracted uh, preparation of my own doctoral thesis, I learned quickly that the few canons of the 1983 Code of Canon Law that treat Catholic universities have a very clear rationale, a very clear ratio legis, and that the provisions of those canons safeguard important principles. My acceptance of this truth helped me finally to finish my thesis, but I took a long time at it because I knew, know that uh, the friends that I had in the Catholic higher education world would perhaps not be all that pleased with the conclusions of my research. The first principle, of course, of those canons, notwithstanding the contrary objections of the university leadership at the time, was that a Catholic university is a participant in the life of the church, and that therefore the church and its pastors have a role in university life and are not external to it. Uh, something that John Paul II repeatedly uh, said, especially in meetings with Catholic higher education leaders uh, in this country, but also in uh, the final text of uh, ECE itself. The lobbying of leadership based on the Land O'Lakes rhetoric would gladly have seen no reference to Catholic universities in the 1983 code and no apostolic constitution on Catholic universities. But a closer look at these documents reveals what is not simply the result of pressure from the leadership. Rather, the church's understanding of the nature of a Catholic university is the rationale for its minimal provisions for the direct involvement of ecclesiastical authority in its governance. University autonomy has deep roots in Western culture, even if it was otherwise implied in the 1917 code, uh, where all Catholic educational institutions from kindergarten to graduate school were treated under a single heading. The 1983 code, like the council itself, treated universities separately from schools, assigning schools, Catholic universities, and ecclesiastical universities uh, individual chapters in the code. While the 1917 code attributed to bishops the right to appoint and remove even university-level teachers, the current code uh, in order to acknowledge and promote the value of autonomy, recognized that function as belonging to the authority determined in the university statutes. Canon 810, paragraph 1, nonetheless, declared the criteria for appointment and removal. First, 
the scientific and pedagogical qualifications that are to be expected of university level teachers, as well as a further requirement proper to a Catholic institution, namely integrity of doctrine and probity of life. Since nothing appears um, as, as specified about those qualities in the code, it can be concluded that the institutional statutes could determine uh, their meaning and procedure of application uh, more specifically. In any case, the substantive ratio legis on the matter is perfectly clear. An institutional commitment to participate in the church's teaching mission through instruction, research, and service quite simply requires a critical mass of persons who are so committed. This does not necessarily exclude non-Catholics, as ECE specifically recognizes, when it distinguishes between Catholic teachers who are to be faithful to Catholic doctrine uh, in their teaching and research, while all others are to respect it. What does ECE say of the critical mass? It asserts the following. In order not to endanger the Catholic identity of the university, the number of non-Catholic teachers should not be allowed to constitute a majority within the institution which is and must remain Catholic. I have elsewhere conducted a careful examination of the texts of ECE and of the U.S. bishops' ordinaciones, or application, uh, along with their various journeys toward promulgation. There is no time and little value in repeating much of that here, but for the purposes of our reflection here together, I will point out a major problem that I have encountered in my study of what I will call the USA Particular Norms, PN. Both the Apostolic Constitution and the uh, application of the US bishops are divided into two parts. The first is an introduction seeking to describe what a Catholic university is. The second is a prescriptive or normative section that has binding force of ecclesiastical law, whether universal or particular. It can be safely said that the introductory part um, is something of a ratio legis for the normative part. The uh, particular norms were prepared by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops over a fairly stormy 10-year period of consultation between bishops uh, and several Catholic university presidents chosen by their peers at the name of the Bishops and Presidents Committee. To make a long story short, the presidents were a fairly united front whose central desire uh, was to have a document that was minimally prescriptive the bishops were divided, but a good number of them were disposed to honor uh, the position of the university leadership. Various drafts appeared. The earlier ones were brief, aspirational, and quite general. The Holy See would not confirm the conference's proposed document until it produced norms of a more juridical nature. And there was a small uh, subcommittee of bishops who were also uh, canon lawyers, appointed to draft a further document which satisfied the required uh, uh, supermajority of the conference, though not, of course, the university leadership, who were quite disappointed with it. Though this document eventually received the required recognition of the Holy See, it was, as a legal document, in my opinion, significantly flawed. My reference above to the critical mass and the Catholic majority provision in ECE is a case in point. The purpose of the national norms was to apply in the concrete political, social, and academic situation of various nations throughout the world the general norms of the pontifical document. But the objectivity of the general norms was not to be lost, only made more specific. To ensure this, the Congregation for Catholic Education, as to say the Vatican Department responsible for Catholic education at every level, had issued several directives calling for concrete procedures ensuring the general norms would be properly applied on the national 
scenes. In other words, it was a, it was a list of topics that all of those different uh, national bishops conferences documents were to uh, address. The particular norms in the US provided for the most part no concrete means or procedures for achieving such objectives as recruiting professors committed to the Catholic identity, orienting new faculty members to the Catholic mission of the institution, ensuring statutory provisions for mission-based hiring and firing, and for the granting, withholding, or removal of the mandatum for teachers of theological disciplines. Instead, the language of the pontifical document was softened by adding, to the extent possible, to such expectations that the majority of the board and faculty members be Catholic. And while these board members were to be Catholics committed to the church, no such further specification was made for faculty members, nor uh, was the case of lapsed, indifferent, or hostile Catholics addressed as may have been usefully done in the context of the USA. ECE addresses the quality of teachers and in a footnote repeats the text of Canon 810 that uh, I spoke of earlier and its reference to integrity of doctrine and probity of life. This is translated in the particular norms where they say all professors are expected to exhibit not only academic competence and good character, but also respect for Catholic doctrine. That's all professors, whether Catholic or not, not promotion of Catholic doctrine, uh, not safeguarding Catholic doctrine, but respect for it. Any further detail is left to the statutes, including possible distinction to be made in this matter between Catholics and non-Catholics, and just what is meant by good character. Finally, on the matter of academic freedom, I note that the general norms of ECE makes the following affirmation. Freedom in research and teaching is recognized and respected according to the principles and methods of each individual discipline, as long as the right of the individual, excuse me, the rights of the individual and of the community are preserved within the confines of the truth and the common good. The particular norms address academic freedom in its own text, suggesting concern for the common good uh, is to be characterized um, is to characterize the bishop's duty to recognize and promote the rightful academic freedom of professors in Catholic universities in their search for truth. It further conditions the promotion of Catholic identity and fostering of Catholic teaching and discipline by respect for the religious liberty of individuals. The uh, influence of the bishops and presidents committee is so uh, obvious in uh, the transition from the universal text to, to the particular text, to the national text. It would have been more helpful had the notions of truth and the common good as conditions to academic freedom had been further explored and applied uh, to the national scene by the particular norms. Canon 810 paragraph one imposes an obligation, at least implicitly, on Catholic universities themselves to guarantee in their statutes their Catholic identity and precisely through uh, the doctrinal, uh, precisely through the doctrinal and moral commitment of university personnel. By con contrast, Canon 810 paragraph two sets forth a right and duty of the hierarchy, and specifically the conferences of bishops and diocesan bishops of being watchful so that the principles of Catholic doctrine are observed faithfully in these same universities. Here too, the ratio legis seems fairly clear. As the pastors and teachers of the church, the bishops are bound to exercise vigilance, lest the integrity of faith and morals be threatened by any forces which oppose that teaching, either directly or indirectly. Such negative influences may come from a wide variety of sources outside the church, agents of government and pol politics, the broader academic world, and the news and uh, entertainment media are but a few examples. Bishops are obliged to recognize such dangers and speak out clearly in their preaching and writing to urge the faithful uh, to be discerning about these uh, influences. 
uh, and uh, the, the influence that uh, these sources have uh, on their moral choices uh, and attitudes, on the lives of their families, the education of their children, uh, and the conduct of their professional, social, and political lives. More uh, particularly, of course, this duty um, of vigilance extends to Catholic institutions, including those dedicated to health care, charity, social service, and education. Institutions that directly depend on the bishop's authority are certainly the objects of their vigilance, but so are those institutions that are related to the church uh, in one manner or other, even though they retain a high degree of autonomy as is the case with most Catholic universities. Vigilance can be said to be an Episcopal art. It includes a high level of familiarity with the object, uh, good, source of, good sources of information, personal presence, both formal and informal, praise, encouragement, admonition when needed, and sometimes judicial public comment. The scope of vigilance with regard to Catholic universities is quite broad. As ECE affirms, a Catholic university as Catholic informs and carries out its, carries out its research, teaching, and all other activities with Catholic ideals, principles, and attitudes. We have only to think of articles in the press, on Catholic blogs, and in statements of those organizations that have made themselves uh, the watchdogs of Catholic higher education to recognize some of the neuralgic issues, honorary degree recipients, speakers invited to campus, plays produced there, and various issues uh, dealt with by student affairs and health services personnel. In some of these areas, we have seen some very uh, public disputes between the bishops and Catholic universities sometimes to the embarrassment of one or both parties. For this reason, it is regrettable that the U.S. bishops failed to heed adequately the admonition of ECE that the Episcopal conferences adopt procedures for resolving disputes concerning Catholic character, which uh, the bishops have the right and duty to preserve and strengthen. The U.S. bishops seem to presume that such disputes would arise more readily between theologians and the church's magisterium, topic that we dealt with a bit last night. But experience has taught us that problems tend to arise more frequently in the other areas mentioned above. In many places, there are good lines of communication open between bishops and university presidents, but these may not be enough. Closer cooperation between lower level university and diocesan officials may effectively prevent potential fires. And when the fire spreads in such a way that even the bishops and presidents cannot extinguish it, various formal means of dispute resolution, such as those suggested in Canon 1733 and following, uh, should be employed in such a way that the objectives of both parties are considered and, if possible, met in some mutually acceptable way. It is, in my opinion, further regrettable that the list of eight essential elements of Catholic identity, including uh, a commitment to create a campus culture, an environment that is expressive and supportive of a Catholic way of life, was transferred from the normative section of the document, as in the prior draft, uh, to its introductory non-juridical uh, section. Confronting vexing issues courageously and honestly in advance could preclude any regrettable last straw action such as that provided for in John Paul, by John Paul II in his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, where he wrote, a particular responsibility is incumbent upon bishops with regard to Catholic uh, institutions. Bishops can canonically erect and recognize these structures and delegate certain responsibilities to them. Nevertheless, bishops are never, to, are never relieved of their own personal obligations. It falls to them in, commu in communion with the Holy See, both to grant the title Catholic to church-related schools 
universities, healthcare facilities, and counseling services, and in cases um, of a serious failure to live up to that title, uh, to take it away. It seems that the Pope is not using a simplistic, nominalistic uh, interpretation of the title Catholic, Canon 808. He means institutions that hold themselves out as Catholic. In my opinion, the university's honest, good faith attempt to observe the church's fairly modest norms designed to preserve that Catholic identity can go far to safeguard them from such radical actions uh, on the part of ecclesiastical authority as uh, Veritatis Splendor suggests. It is difficult to say how successful the provision about Episcopal vigilance over universities has been. The university presidents seem untroubled by it, since it does not even suggest control on the part of the bishops or uh, any direct intervention in university governance. Uh, and they are likely to have been pleased by the lengthy discussion in the introductory section of uh, the US norms of mutual trust between university and church authorities, close and consistent cooperation between university and church authorities, and continuing dialogue uh, among university representatives and church authorities. Each of these three fairly soft um, categories were addressed in a separate uh, number, separate uh, uh, article of the introductory section of the US document. There have been, however, ample complaints uh, from some quarters about how Catholic universities are neglecting their Catholic identity or acting in ways contrary to it. These same complainants uh, are critical of what they see as the bishop's failure to exercise adequate vi vigilance or oversight. Nor has the Holy See seen fit to intervene, uh, perhaps observing the principle of subsidiarity, says that these uh, issues should be dealt with at the local level. Um, but they've um, also turned to the university's sponsoring religious institutes and their superiors for assistance in safeguarding Catholic uh, identity. St. John Paul II makes reference to this source of support in number 25 of the introductory section of ECE, where he says many Catholic universities were founded by religious congregations and continue to depend on their support. Those religious congregations dedicated to the apostolate of higher education uh, are urged to assist these institutions in the renewal of their commitment and to continue to prepare religious men and women who can positively contribute to the mission of a Catholic university. So looking to the religious institutes that sponsor Catholic universities may be viewed by some as the Holy See punting on this particular uh, question. My own very public and published sympathy with the role of the bishops in Catholic uh, higher education moved the center of my apostolic efforts away uh, from Catholic university administration and toward the unexpected work of priestly formation where uh, perhaps the church does its thinking or not. Uh, until recently, uh, with diocesan seminarians in Baltimore and in Rome, and with graduate students in canon law uh, in Washington and in Rome. Uh, in more recent years, however, it's been my privilege to teach uh, and help in the religious formation of my own younger Jesuit confreres. I've been greatly pleased that most of these young religious are blessed with a healthy ecclesial mindedness. Uh, those destined for work in higher education, and many of them are dedicated to the sacred sciences, are not inclined to fight the battles of former generations and seem intent on um, centering their work in higher education, present and future, at the heart of the church. There was a young uh, Jesuit friend of mine who eventually found himself as president of a, of a uh, Jesuit university, who at a conference back in uh, 2001 said that his generation uh, wasn't fighting the, the battles of the, uh, of the generation or two ahead of them. He said he uh, never knew that Land O'Lakes was anything but a brand of butter. <laughs> Similarly, the emerging leaders of Catholic universities are laymen and women who seem less shy about asserting their institution's Catholic identity uh, than were uh, clerics of former years 
who are concerned instead with emphasizing the commonality of their institutions with those led by their secular peers. Having considered Canon 810 uh, and the complementary roles of institutional and ecclesiastical authorities, I'd like to turn now to what is uh, uh, what uh, for uh, two decades was the single most controverted uh, issue uh, touching Catholic higher education. Uh, first uh, in the revision of the code in the 1980s and then in the preparation of the USCCD document. And that is Canon 812 on the mandatum. In case some of my hearers have not committed it to memory, it reads as follows. Those who teach theological disciplines in any institutes of higher studies whatsoever uh, must have a mandate from the competent ecclesiastical authority. During the drafting period, uh, the most vexing question was quite simply, what is a mandate? From a canonical point of view, the word is a strange one since elsewhere in the code it means something quite different from what uh, has now been accepted to be the special meaning in this context. Uh, elsewhere, it means the conferral by an ecclesiastical authority of some element of his otherwise exclusive authority on someone else who would ordinarily not have had that authority. Few in the Catholic world would say that theologians, even the most orthodox and faithful of them, are, as it were, substituting for the bishops when they teach. The bishops, of course, are teachers themselves, but in a quite different way. Well, over 30 years ago, my fellow student of canon law, Robert Dealey, now Bishop of Portland, Maine, drew in his doctoral research an important conclusion that this uh, academic mandate, with its source in the conciliar decree on the laity, is to be understood as the means by which a bishop recognizes the ecclesial activity of another precisely for what it is in itself. The mandate is a recognition and declaration that a theologian is working in communion with the church and its teaching authority and is not offering as Catholic teaching anything that is not Catholic teaching. In ECE, the mandate is mentioned only once um, in Article 4, Section 3 of the General Norms, uh, we read the following. In ways appropriate to the different academic disciplines, Catholic teachers are to be faithful to and all other teachers are to respect Catholic doctrine and morals uh, in their research and teaching. In particular, Catholic theologians, aware that they fulfill a mandate that they receive from the church, are to be faithful to the magisterium of the church as the interpreter of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. This is followed by a footnote that recites the canon in full. The words fulfill a mandate created some distress among the university people who rejected the notion of the bishops uh, that the bishops were making academic appointments, a notion that the deference to university authorities guaranteed in Canon 810, Paragraph 1, contradicted. The particular norms at Article 4 has a lengthy discussion of the mandate and makes a number of negative assertions. The mandate should not be construed as an appointment, authorization, delegation, or approbation of one's teaching uh, by ecclesiastical authority. And positively, it says the mandatum recognizes the professor's commitment to teach authentic Catholic doctrine and to refrain from putting forth as Catholic teaching anything contrary to the church's magisterium. The ratio legis for the first norm we consider today is a Catholic university's internal desire and commitment to safeguard its Catholic identity by what has come to be called hiring for mission. There are various ways to do this, and it is fitting that the institution make the appropriate statutory provisions to regulate and evaluate faculty for their service of mission and to determine the remedy, as uh, the particular norms put it, uh, when uh, the situation, uh, in a situation when the faculty do not meet these standards. Otherwise, Catholic character would be likely to suffer irreparable damage. The rationale for the second norm is the unique role of the hierarchy uh, to be vigilant for the protection of Catholic faith and morals in every quarter where Catholics live and work and where the church bears witness to evangelical values. Such vigilance is all the more crucial in institutions related to the church. Now we need to consider the ratio legis of the mandatum. It is uh, less directly focused 
on faculty quality in general, uh, or on the wide range of faith-based issues that call for the bishop's vigilance, but on the special place of theology in the church and the university and the relationship between bishops and theologians. More than any other right, in my opinion, that this norm protects is the right of the faithful to rely on Catholic theologians uh, to present Catholic teaching authentically. There are many highly technical issues concerning the mandatum that remain of timely uh, or at least theoretical interest uh, to canonists, which we have no time to consider here. We should leave the subject appropriately, perhaps, at a footnote uh, in the US uh, norms. In this footnote is hidden some uh, valuable and practical information. It affirms that Canon 812 is grounded in the right and responsibility of bishops to safeguard the faithful teaching of Catholic doctrine to the people of God and to assure the authentic, uh, its authentic presentation uh, of the church's magisterium. It repeats the notion that those with such a mandatum are not agents of the magisterium. They teach in their own name, not in the name of the bishop. Nonetheless, they are not separate from the church's teaching mission. Responding to their baptismal call, their ecclesial task is to teach, write, and research for the benefit of the church and within its communion. The mandatum is essentially the recognition of the ecclesial relationship between the professor and the church. Teaching in the name of the bishop or uh, of the church's magisterium is different from teaching on behalf of the church. The 1990 instruction, Donum Veritatis, of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, affirms that it is the magisterium's mission to set forth the gospel's teaching, guard its integrity, and thereby protect the faith of the people of God, whose right it is to receive the message of the church in its purity and integrity, and not uh, be disturbed by a particular uh, dangerous opinion. This responsibility uh, may lead the magisterium to take serious measures as when it withdraws the, uh, from the theologian who departs from the doctrine of the faith, the canonical mission or teaching mandate it had given him. Such action should not be seen as a violation of justice, the instruction maintains, when it affirms that the theologian who is not disposed to think with the church contradicts the commitment he freely and knowingly accepted to teach in the name of the church. Similarly, uh, in an address on the church and the theologian given at the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto in April 1986, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger observed that the freedom of the individual instructor is not the only good under the law, nor is it the highest good to be safeguarded. The church's main job, he affirmed, is to care for, is uh, the care of the faith of the simple. A professor's uh, opinions, he goes on to say, are given a weight which they could not possibly deserve on their own precisely because he teaches on behalf of the church. Believers have confidence in the church's word and so naturally transfer that confidence to those who teach in her name. Perhaps a topic, uh, perhaps a position, on which many would not agree. What then is the university's role in the matter? Our footnote tells us that seeking the mandatum is the professor's responsibility, not the university's. What happens if the professor teaches without the mandatum? Referring to Canon 810 paragraph one, the footnote declares, the university must determine what further action may be taken in accordance with its own mission and statutes. The university, of course, could include it in, in its statutes and contracts and the provision uh, that having a mandatum is a necessary condition for initial appointment and continued employment of a teacher of theological disciplines. If this is the case, and if the university observes its statutes, there is no need for any further uh, revelations. The norm of Canon 812 will have achieved its end. If a mandate were denied or withdrawn in a particular case and the theologian departed, the common good would probably not require disclosure of the fact or details of the matter. In such a case, undue publicity might be properly construed as a violation of the theologian's reputation or right to privacy. But it is widely the case that 
universities have not incorporated the provisions of ECE or its uh, national norms into institutional statutes and have made no statutory or contractual provisions whereby the mandate is made a condition of employment for teachers of theological disciplines. In such situations, the faithful have no way of knowing whether a theologian has a mandate or more uh, fundamentally, whether his teaching is in conformity with that of the magisterium. I sat at a session uh, of the USCCB in which the chairman of, of the mandatum committee told his brother bishops that this was an altogether private matter. Seems to me that that um, bishop simply missed the point of uh, the ratio legis of Canon 812. Um, even if ecclesiastical authority is unable to have the statutory deficiency of um, many Catholic universities remedied, it cannot abdicate its duty to provide the faithful with the assurance guaranteed uh, to them by the norm of Canon 812 and establish a means of providing the information. The most equitable declaration would be one in which all those teaching theological disciplines who had a mandate from the bishop were listed and published. There would be no need for the bishop to list or categorize those who lack the mandate, offer comments, or answer specific questions. Uh, if he were to provide no complete list uh, and only answer specific questions posed by one or other of the faithful about individual professors, his disclosure uh, would be incomplete and therefore unfair nor would names of those with a mandate be omitted from a published uh, list, even at the faculty member's request. A theologian who is content to have a mandate but unwilling to have it known similarly frustrates the purpose, the ratio of the norm. There is no question uh, but uh, that the faithful have a right to know which professors of theology have a mandate from the competent ecclesiastical authority this same authority is the one whose responsibility it is, uh, failing any other source of the information, to provide the faithful uh, with the assurance due to them. As I look back on 25 years since the promulgation of ECE, especially through the lens of uh, the US norms, I wonder in the end how effective these documents have been in strengthening, or in some cases restoring, the religious identity of Catholic universities. The connection between reason and the law presumes a shared vision between the legislator and the persons and institutions being governed. It is, uh, in my opinion, a grave wound to the heart of law when it is ignored by those whose, uh, subject, who are subject to it and even uh, ignored by those charged with its implementation and enforcement. I believe that, the, that higher education is not on the top of the US uh, bishops list of priorities. My guess is that the leadership of the mainstream of Catholic universities is too strong to oppose. Perhaps the law has succeeded, however, in inspiring some Catholic universities freely to choose Catholic identity as a priority of priorities. And maybe we're in such a place right here. I propose that as individual institutions or associations of like-minded ones, they could embody in their statutes the self-regulation and Catholic autonomy that the law really intended in the first place. So uh, though I, I won't go on now since I think I've more or less exhausted the time available to me, I've devised a, a list of model statutes uh, of uh, Catholic universities, which I'd gladly share with any individual uh, uh, university leaders or with associations uh, to um, reflect in the norms that govern an institutional um, uh, structure um, all of the provisions that these uh, documents, particularly the pontifical document, uh, offers in such a way that uh, the institution can evaluate itself on the basis of its own uh, desires uh, to, to be Catholic and to live in the heart of the church. Thank you all for your patience and kind attention. Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, it is an honor for me to be able to share some simple insights into the topics of our symposium this week 
and, and to break open more fully the wonderful apostolic constitution, Ex Corde Ecclesia, from Pope St. John Paul II. I wish to thank all of you by, uh, for joining us during today's dialogue between our presenters and our responders, but especially as we explore the dialogue between faith and reason, Fides et Ratio, in light of the purpose and identity of the Catholic University in our world today. As we have been talking about the relationship between Catholic universities and the teaching office of the Catholic Church, the Magisterium, it is a delight for me to also welcome a member of the Church's Magisterium, Bishop Mark Barczyk, to our talks, and I look forward to his comments later today. We began with a thoughtful and engaging presentation last night from Sister Susan Wood from Marquette University. Thank you, Dr. Wood, for framing our discussions for this week's symposium. Monsignor James Patrick Shea, the president of the University of Mary, will be adding his contributions later today, as will Bishop Barczyk, and I look forward to those words. And we just heard from Father James J. Kahn, Jesuit, to whom I will address a few simple remarks that I hope may add something of merit to this important dialogue. Thank you, Father Jim, for the opportunity to follow your presentation. Finally, to Father Sean Sheridan, our university president, and Dr. J.J. Sanford, our associate vice president for academic affairs, thank you for your hard work and passion in organizing this series of talks at Franciscan. I am humbled to be presenting to you on this topic, especially considering the qualification of our speakers. I do not anticipate being able to add much, if anything, to Father Jim's presentation for you in content. His years of interaction with Ex Corde and the U.S. particular norms responding to the Constitution and canon law in general have been spent in the sits in Leben of Jesuit higher education. What I will seek to bring to the table is a Franciscan perspective to this topic, an earthy incarnational perspective. My background is varied. As you heard, I have developed a hybrid style to how I present material to my students in class. It begins from a background in law enforcement that has developed a desire to delineate concepts as clearly as possible in life. When dealing with the law, this is fundamental to being able to apply a sometimes abstract concept to a real-world situation. In my study of scripture, I discovered the same principle at play. If one wished to apply the good news of the gift of God's salvation in today's world, then one needed to not just look at the text and then apply it to one's life. One needs to understand that what is behind the text, what occurred in before and after both the passage as well as the composition of the passage. In my studies in canon law, I have found the same to be true. In order to implement the Code of Canon Law from 1983 that is operative today, one must understand that this codex does not stand alone. It comes from a long process of revision that began shortly after the promulgation of the first single codex of the Roman Catholic Church in 1917. But it took on real momentum following the Ecumenical Council of Vatican II in the 60s. And our understanding of law is constantly evolving and growing, especially in its application. That is why the Apostolic See continues to issue documents to aid us in our living out of the law, the law of Christ, and the law of his church. And so much as we do with scripture studies, we need to look not only at the law as it is present today, but as it has evolved and has been articulated over the years that it has been developing. And I believe that Father Jim has done a wonderful job of presenting much of this journey for us this morning. He gave us some necessary insight into the sits im Leben of the world of the Catholic University following Vatican II, as well as his own Jesuit tradition. He shared not only the background, but also the background for the development of the 83 Code of Canon Law, the subsequent issuance of the Apostolic Constitution, ex corde, the development of the National Ordinationas, the particular application of the U.S. by the National Catholic Conference of Bishops, and finally, he uh, stated uh, as a proposed map future model statutes that he's more than welcome, welcome and willing to share. 
As a canonist, I would believe that Father Jim would agree with me that in order for one to embrace a law, one must understand what law is. St. Thomas Aquinas defines law as an ordinance of reason for the common good of a complete or perfect community promulgated by the person or body responsible for looking after that community. The reasonableness that this definition calls for reflects the ideal of intellectualism we receive from Aristotle and also from natural law. We see here, see here ties to sisters' talk from last night, in which the use of reason can give way to a telos, a perfection or completion of a community. And so laws must be reasonable. They need to seek a perfection for the community to which they apply. Ex Corde establishes for the community of the church, the ecclesia, the Christian faithful, norms regarding Catholic universities. This document, however, built upon the canons of Book 3 of the 83 Codex, specifically Canons 807 to 814, as Father Jim shared with us. And as I previously stated, the revision of the Codex came from the call of Vatican II for renewal in the Church, a re-articulation of the truths of Christ, the deposit of faith for the modern world that found itself in a bit of a free fall following World War I and World War II. This was a time of great questioning of all institutional structures in society, and people sought a modern understanding for humanity and its place in the universe. However, here is a challenge that was present for the church. Unlike the majority of the 83 code, there was not an equivalent treatment of the topic of Catholic universities as full in the 17 code. I believe at least a partial reason for this was that there was not a need to clarify, legally articulate an understanding of the identity of Catholic universities. In light of the questioning of all things following the upheaval of the world resulting from world wars of the 20th century, an identity crisis in Catholic universities, especially here in the US, emerged that we are still struggling with today. In my humble opinion, I believe this is the crux of the debate between those in Catholic higher education who struggle with the fear of a magisterial intrusion upon their academic freedom and those who seek to embrace a mission that has been at the heart of Catholic universities since the very beginning of the scholastic age of humanity when the university system was begun by the Catholic Church. In our understanding of the term secular these days, we have embraced a false definition. Secular has come to mean not only its original meaning of that which is not of the church, but to be that which is against the church. And so we have set up a dichotomy between secular universities and Catholic universities, which puts them at odds. And with the development of academic excellence at our secular universities, Catholic universities have allowed themselves to be subordinated to this secular model. Secular does not mean in opposition to the church. Its original meaning was to designate that which is not specifically under the direct control of the church did not arise from the structure of the church. However, there was not an intention to say the church should not interact with and have influence upon those things that originate outside of herself. And for those things that did come into existence through the church, like Catholic universities, they should not only interact with the church, but recognize the authority of the church. I submit that this crux is what Father Jim referred to when he stated in regards to his dissertation work, quote, I learned quickly that the few canons of the 83 Code of Canon Law that treat Catholic universities have a very clear rationale that the provision of those canons safeguard important principles. My acceptance of this truth helped me to finish my thesis. The first principle, of course, notwithstanding the contrary objections of the university leadership, was that a Catholic university is a participant in the life of the church and therefore 
The church and its pastors have a role in the university life and are not external to it. The lobbying of the leadership based on the Lando Lakes rhetoric would gladly have seen no reference to Catholic universities in the 83 Code and no apostolic constitution on Catholic universities, end quote. This desire from Catholic university leadership to protect, protect the academic freedom of their universities is well-founded both from Vatican I and Vatican II. The Church affirmed this in Gaudium at Spes, that the legitimate autonomy of the human arts and sciences should be and is respected by the Church. In the drafting of Ex Corde, as well as the norms for the U.S., this same understanding is reflected. But the challenge I see that arose is again in the identity crisis that many Catholic universities still struggle with today. I believe there's much evidence to support my supposition that many of our Catholic universities are truly struggling with an identity crisis. Recent scholarship attests to this. The vast presentations of dissertations for advanced degrees in Catholic education in recent history have focused on the mission of Catholic universities or the role of the mission office slash officer of Catholic universities. And so many of these have unfortunately focused, especially in regards to universities founded by religious orders, solely or primarily on the charism of the school's founders. A plethora of scholarship has been published on the Franciscan charism of universities, the Jesuit charism of universities, the Marianist charism, and so on, without fully or primarily articulating the Catholic identity of Catholic universities. Please excuse, excuse the simplicity of the following statement but a Catholic university's primary mission is to be a Catholic university. We are not secular universities. Our origin is from the church. Should not then our mission be based in the mission Christ gave his church? As a professor in our theology department here at Franciscan, I was happy to receive from our own bishop a mandate to teach the truth of our church. I've also had the privilege to serve, as you heard, at our sister university, St. Francis University of Loretto. One of the many hats that I wore there included being a chaplain to many athletic teams as well as the athletic department. Our program there is a Division I program, and so there's a great deal of pressure to perform on the big stage of the NCAA. However, the athletic department works tirelessly to make sure that our students know that they are student athletes and not athlete students. Their primary mission is to be a student, and there is no compromise as unfortunately can be found in some other schools, in their mission as students directing their status as athletes. I believe that this is a worthy parallel for our Catholic universities to be reminded of. Our mission as universities must be first and foremost that we are Catholic. I am proud that Franciscan University recognizes this and embraces it. Not only we friars, but our faculty, and staff, students, trustees, and benefactors. We honor the heritage that we have inherited to be Catholic for our students who desire to attend a Catholic university. Our flavor is Franciscan, but the paradigm from which we operate is Catholic. No bait and switch going on here. And so, Father Jim, I would direct then to you for the sake of helping our audience to engage in your wonderful presentation, that by offering your proposed statutes for Catholic universities that you offer to us, um, you might agree that in the light of subsidiarity, the primary responsibility for the integrity of the Catholic identity of a Catholic university and her Catholic mission should be the responsibility of each university. I would present a concept from my past that helps to illustrate this. 
Whether there is a law enforcement officer around or not at an intersection, the individual motorist is responsible for bringing his own vehicle to a complete stop. The law is present to direct him, but he must take the responsibility upon himself. Secondly, you gave us solid guidelines. You didn't see them. I had the privilege of seeing them, and he's willing to offer it to anyone who, who would like to see them. Solid, solid guidelines for institutional statutes that would support the individual universities fulfilling her own responsibility of Catholic identity promotion. However, you did also express a disappointment in the final form of the U.S. norms we received from which the practical application of ex corde is to be developed. I would ask you if you might share with us some concrete suggestions on how these U.S. norms should be reworked to better answer their mission from ex corde. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.